A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Hero can be anyone, even a man doing something as simple and reassuring as putting a coat around a young boy's shoulders to let him know the world hadn't ended. Hey, Mr. Rogers. It's a beautiful day. Welcome to Screen Perspectives, a podcast produced by the Pittsburgh Film Office to share how people build successful careers in the screen industry, be it in film, TV, streaming, etc. Screen Perspectives was born out of many conversations with industry professionals, sometimes over dinner, sometimes over drinks, and a lot of times driving around looking at the wonderful diversity of locations in the southwestern Pennsylvania region. Thousands of people make their living in the film, TV, streaming business, which is nationally an over $28 billion a year industry. Locally, it is responsible for over $150 million in new money to the southwestern Pennsylvania region's economy. There really is no direct pathway to success in this industry. It's a lot of hard work, networking, and you have to account for a little bit of luck to be successful. The Pittsburgh Film Office is excited to share these amazing individual stories with you so you can learn how they did it and determine your best path forward. Screen Perspectives is hosted by me, Dawn Kieser, Director of the Pittsburgh Film Office, and the incredible Kevin Smith, Screenwriter and Screenwriting Instructor at the University of Pittsburgh. Our guest on today's podcast is the one and only Jill Danton. Jill Danton is the Vice President of Production for Boat Rocker Studios, also known as the company that produces American Rust, that films right here in Southwestern Pennsylvania starring Jeff Daniels and Maura Turney. Some of her other well-known projects include Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, Lizzie McGuire, The Muppets, and Queer Eye. Known for her outstanding contributions to the entertainment industry, Jill has built an impressive legacy through her accomplishments. From captivating performances to notable productions, join us as we delve into the multifaceted career of the talented Jill Danton. Thank you for listening. I've never seen a producer with credits that diverse. And I constantly preach to my students, your strength is in your diverse. It's like a, like a portfolio, just like stocks yep. is about your diversified portfolio. Did that help you ascend because of your diversity and in what ways? You know, I, no, I don't think so, actually, because like when I did Harry and the Hendersons, it was a time at NBC Universal, actually, then it wasn't NBC, it was just Universal, um, that they had almost all their stages were filled with sitcoms, right? Get up. Way up north in a house that's new. There were forest meal, big feet and you. From your ankle up, I would say you sure is free. From that down, you just too much feet. Mad at you cause your feet's too big. I love you even if your feet's too big. And mine was a single camera mm-hmm. sitcom, meaning it was an audience base. We were still yeah. on tripods, but we were uh, not tripods, uh, pedestals, but yeah. we were film camera. Mm-hmm. And once in a while, we would go onto the back lot to shoot some single camera type of mm-hmm. scenes, right? Mm-hmm. The other shows rarely did that. 
but I would always see those producers who were older than me, wiser than me, all of that, and had fallen into the rut of, oh, I'm doing a sitcom. Oh, Universal's offered me another sitcom and another, and I can just, you know, just coast out my career doing sitcoms, right? That may seem to them like, oh, that's great because they can just ride it out and get their next job and the next job and the next job. But I would always know when one of those other shows were going onto the back lot to shoot a single camera scene because it was like a fire drill. Everyone's running around with their hair on fire. <laughs> and I'm just like, look at this. See, this is because they're just not used to problem solving or having mm -hmm. anything outside of the rote little railroad tracks they're on. Yeah. And I made a note to myself, I said, never be that person. Hmm. Right. Hmm. And so I probably could have stayed at Universal after Harry and the Hendersons and just done more and more shows like that. And that would probably have been easier because I didn't even need to, you know, look for anything, but it just yeah. didn't turn me on. And I didn't feel like it was the best thing based on what I had witnessed, experienced. So. I just started throwing my hat in the ring for anything that would come up that would seem more interesting, something I hadn't tried before, et cetera. Well, take me through the prep and research you would do before going into take a position producing since, again, you're going from uh, uh, something as iconic and branded as the Terminator Sarah Mars Chronicles to Elmo's musical adventure to Queer Eye. So what kind of prep would you do? And how did you do the research before you, know, you went in? I, I wouldn't, you know, the truth of the matter is I really <laughs> wouldn't. I mean, I would read the scripts. I would find <laughs> out what I could about everyone, um, you know, and I would more go into a meeting sort of saying, what are the biggest concerns you have? What are the things that you are worried that can't be surmounted? What are your biggest hopes and dreams for this project? What are you trying to achieve? So I, I would actually turn the interview around at the start to hear from them rather than them hearing from me. It's their project after all, right? Mm -hmm. And so then once I would hear from them, then I would more just go into troubleshooting mode of being like, okay, here's what I see. Here's what I think we can do. Here's something, methodology, maybe that's a little off kilter when you first hear it that we can maybe apply and so that's how it always went you know is that i would just start producing from my chair in the mm -hmm. interview a little bit mm -hmm. and i think you know that word of mouth started getting around which is why people would call me a lot i was mm -hmm. a show doctor for a lot of my career where yeah. i would get brought in when there was a pilot that was now going to series and the pilot had not gone well physically. And they'd be like, Jill, help us. We don't know what <laughs> Fix it. Yeah. You know, or a first season that was halfway through and not going well or, you mm -hmm. know, whatever it may be, or a first season they survived, but needed to move the needle on how things were approached for season two and beyond that sort of thing. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's the dirt part of the conversation. Sorry, Don. I'll, I'll and that is you're, you're fine. What, what, which projects have you turned down that you're sitting there going, oh, what was I thinking? Uh, you know, I, I there's no answer to that because I mean the truth. I I worked constantly. Uh, you yeah. know what I mean. So it was not 
I was never in a place, I don't know if this is on purpose or not, really, it's just the way it happened, that I was never sitting there going, hmm, let me sit. like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I would be on a show and then somebody would call me, when are you free to do the next one, meet these people? Mm -hmm. Like, it was constant. I mean, mm -hmm. I yeah. did a big volume of shows in the time that I have was producing, so it was just next 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 i would sometimes be doing two or three shows at once overlapping mm -hmm. a lot of the time so i don't know how you do that for over 400 i mean that's i don't even know how you do that in a career to be honest with you i've worked with you know obviously i work with producers and everything and they're not even in a ballpark of something like that that's well, unbelievable she's not done so there could be i know she's more, not done so, yeah. I, I know so nobody can catch her it's like a cal ripkin you know i'm never going to come out of the game thing like it's just it's unbelievable okay more dirt uh, tell us some good casting stories. Casting stories. Yeah. With some of the talent that you've had a chance to be on some of your programs. Come on. Dad, well, what come do you on. mean casting stories? Well, like, a, as a producer, you have a say in who's going to be on your series. That obviously. is not true. Oh, really? No, not as far as cast. No. No, no kidding. No kidding. I, I don't have an involvement in cast. I oh. have an involvement with the cast once they're on. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's go there. They, let's go. Then they become my problem. Okay. Let's <laughs> hear about the, let's hear about the problem once they show up then. I want to hear some dirt. I mean, I, honestly, cause I've worked well, with some yeah, interesting I will, cat. I mean, does it have to be dirt or can it be a like fun a story. story of someone who maybe was viewed as, you know, a bad egg that was actually a really good egg. Do you want to Let's do that? that. Well, I, I mean, would love that's to hear good. That. And then it, you can, you know, it illustrates how the producer deals with the talent, you know, in yes. keeping yeah. with our, so how this I will whole say like, for, for example, Terrence Howard, who I worked with on law and order, Los Angeles. Right. And he was, and probably still is to some degree, like, Oh, Terrence, there's like some vibe around about him. Like he is difficult, whatever it may be. He was a pleasure. He was such a professional. Here's a guy who he had not been in this type of genre show before. And he was a prosecutor, DA, right? And so we would have these courtroom scenes. I'm sure you've seen a Dick Wolf show or two where the writers of his shows are typically very in love with their big opening statements, speeches, and all like their there's a lot of thick prose, sometimes with legalese and scientific facts and all this stuff. And Terrence, it was the first time that he was having to spiel that much memorization, thick memorization material. And he was amazing. He, in between sets, he had, I had a stand-in who was an actress who was very good running lines with people. And I coupled them. And he would just be running and running and running lines. And he worked so hard on that show. And he was always a professional. He was always on time. So he was one that positive rather than dirt. He surprised me because everyone was a little trepidatious when he got hired, but he was terrific. So you never know. You never know. Some of the rumors sometimes are not true. I mean, sometimes like a lot of people forget, I think, just because people assume, you know, actors have outsized egos and they're so sure of themselves and they're so on all the time and whatever, that it's actually the most vulnerable yeah. job position mm -hmm. on any show. 
Yeah. And people forget about that, right? Yeah. So yeah. an actor is the most vulnerable yeah. member of the team because they are coming into many times a brand new situation with a mm -hmm. ton of strangers that are going to be completely focused on them mm -hmm. and they're on in a very exposed way. And so sometimes they need to rattle the cage a little bit to figure out where are my allies, how, who reacts, how, what am I working with here? Right. And maybe there's a better way of going about it. But like I always on my shows would be like understanding of that moment of the process until they could figure out who is their ally, who has their back, how is yeah. this going to go? You know, there was another actor who I, I may, may or may not name um, anyway, but terrific <laughs> actor who um, who had come in on a season two of a show to replace another very prominent actor. Right. So there was a lot of focus on this fellow taking over this lead role as like the head district attorney of this mm -hmm. other law project. And so when he came in, I could tell that he was feeling like I could just read. He was feeling like a fish, like I don't know anyone here. These people have been all together for a season one. They may have liked this other actor. <laughs> at personally and now they're looking at me like oh you're the new sheriff in town like right he was vibing on all of this and so what I did was I found out some things about this guy what kind of treats he liked what and one of the things was he loved to smoke Cuban cigars and so I procured his brand of Cuban cigars I went to the craft service guy this fellow Keela who was in cahoots with me. And I said, look, I said, I am not involved in this story of these cigars. You, Keela, go to David James and you say, hey, I, I know, you know, people know, you know, that you like, you know, because obviously I've been following you for a long time, that you love Cuban cigars, this particular brand. I have them for you in the craft service trailer. Anytime you want one, you just come. And I said, and so go to him as if you have done this and you knew this and, you know, he's important enough that you would know this. And so he did. And that just broke all of the ice for him. Genius. He would be out on the steps of the craft service trailer smoking a stogie. Like it just put him at ease. Like, okay, if this guy, this obscure person on the, knows this about me, mm -hmm then maybe I've misjudged people are actually yeah. no, like, and it completely put him at ease uh, immediately. Right. That, to me, that, that so describes why you're the top of your field, because those are things you don't find in a book. Those are things that you not only, you're the psychologist, you're the bartender, you're the producer. Yes. Yeah. You're like, you really have to understand everyone that's, that you're overseeing to get their best performance. It doesn't matter what they're doing, whether right. they're a gaffer or whether they're an A-lister, you really have to have that sense. And, and that alone, that story right there is just genius. And the fact that you gave it to a, a craft services person to have the, to understand what that would mean coming from him, 
as opposed to you. I, I love that. I think that's just expertise and brilliance. That that's def, that defines Look at somebody that who's dog. See that expertise and brilliance. It describes you <laughs> perfectly, Jill. I, it's why you're here with us today. I'm going to give you my mother's number, Kevin. You got to call her and <laughs> afterwards. Isaiah that's a, that's can connect you. Yeah. There you go. It'd be perfect. So, Absolutely. can we talk about why you left New York and went to LA? Yeah, I got married. I, I, it was, a, it was, what happened was, what happened was I met someone on a location. We hit it off. And so, and I kept my New York apartment for many years, for probably two or three years. And, but I would go to LA. He would sometimes go to New York, but LA at that time had so much work, right? Unlike today. And so I just kept getting hired and hired and having these longer and longer gigs. And so I think it was like maybe two years in, I had gone back to my New York apartment and the landlord knew that I was there and he knocked on my door. He's like, his name was Bobby. He's like a sideways nose guy, Bobby. <laughs> and he was like, Jill, can I level with you? I said, yes, Bobby, what? He goes, Jill, you don't live here anymore. <laughs> You got to wake up. You don't live here anymore, Jill. Give up the apartment. I was like, thank you for the pep talk, Bobby. I'll take it under consideration. I shut the door. Anyway, six months later, I finally gave up the apartment. So I was just like, what am I doing? Like, I don't live here anymore. So it happened breaking my fingers to let go of New York, Don. Okay. Well, you're, yeah, you're a, you're a native. You're a native. What part? Now, I know, you know, New York born and bred. What part? Yonkers. Oh, Yonkers. So you're up yeah. by the Stelladora Bakery over yeah, that way. The mean streets. Absolutely. Of, the mean streets of Yonkers. The mean streets of Yonkers, right up to Deegan. That's, when, that's when wonderful. When we were younger, when we were teenagers and anyone would ask us, we would say Tuckahoe <laughs> because it was very adjacent to Yonkers, but mm -hmm. it was, it, everyone thought it was a little more upscale and Yonkers <laughs> was like the low down, like, you know. <laughs> okay, but now you're where? You're in Santa Monica, right? Uh, Marina Del Rey. Oh, you're Marina Del Rey. Oh, you're. With a full-blown yeah. organic garden where she's got Absolutely. these amazing vegetables that she it's shows on story. Facebook. And I'm like, okay, I got to get to LA just to go have dinner with Jill because yeah, right. you haven't been you haven't been this season. Have you been here? And I didn't know. No. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and Isaiah's here. He usually has a question and I'm curious if he has any right now because he always jumps in with a, a really good one. Yeah, I actually do have a question. Hey, Jill, I, I didn't get a chance to say hi to you. How you doing? How you doing? Hi, you remind me of my mom a little bit. I'm not going to lie. You do remind okay. me of my mom. Wait, wait, wait. Isaiah, a I'm little... just so glad you didn't say, I remind you of your grandma. <laughs> so thank you for that. Your awareness. No, Jill, I your think situational awareness, Isaiah, has just shown itself. Okay. Yeah. And that is mom. She's a rock star and, like, you know, way younger than us and beautiful. So that's a big compliment. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do have a question. And, um, What's it called? I was, I had, my uncle once told me this and he said, um, most uh, dif difficult roads lead to beautiful destinations. And just going off of that, um, I play football and I came from a place where, um, you know, it's tough in New Jersey and Vauxhall, Kevin knows. And, you know, you don't have the opportunity, but I was given the opportunity to play football and it, it, it made me open my eyes. And the, the moment I opened my eyes was the ACC championship. And um, I came a long way and I said to myself, and this is why I love to do this. So my question is, where was a time where 
you smiled and said to yourself, this is why I love to do this? Well, it's interesting. That's a beautiful question, Isaiah. And I'll add something to your mantra that you introduce this question with and say also the cream always rises to the top. But the key of that is believing yourself to be the cream and nobody can topple that thought in your mind. So that that is a piece of advice I give you is declare yourself the cream and then you'll have the ambition, you'll have the drive, you'll create that reality for yourself, right? So, um, but to get to your question, I would say the moment that I realized that this is my path, I think, you know, I don't know that there was a specific moment, but I would say it was probably, you know, during my earlier years in Los Angeles when I, I had gotten a divorce from the person that I originally came out here to be with. And so there was a few years where I was kind of, I mean, I was still doing all the things I was doing, but I was kind of recalibrating, like, how did I get here? Like, how, you know, and, but the reality was the fruits of everything that had occurred was in my life. I had great friends out here, many of whom were colleagues, some of whom were not, but you know, in this, it's a very social business. So your social circles tend to start building from the people you've met and had an affinity with. Right. And, you know, I was loving the jobs I was doing. I was, you know, always working. I was feeling very fulfilled. So I think it was just in that space having transitioned out of the relationship that brought me and kind of coming into my own in these ways, both in my personal life and my professional life and just being like, yeah, it's all like sometimes a path takes you somewhere and you think that path is the why, but really sometimes it's just a gateway, right? Wow. That's crazy. That That's lovely. That's yeah. really lovely to say. What what advice would you give? I have all these young kids who want to uh, get into the industry. What advice would you give them besides going to offices and knocking on doors? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, these days, you know, not to say it's a lot easier, but the volume of work that's out there, not in a strike year like this is going to be, <laughs> but in a normal year, that that on the one hand would seem to make it easier because there's such a big volume of work and matriculation need of people moving higher and higher into jobs after they've had a bit of experience, right? So that is better. There's internet now with all sorts of job postings, LinkedIn, you know, there's specific job posting sites and forums for people who are already in a particular field or wanting to get into a particular field. So all of those mechanisms seem like it should make it easier, but there is the downside of the fact that all of those things make the industry in some ways, maybe a little less personal than it was. Right? So you're just another name, another person, another volume entity, whatever. Right? So I would just say, you know, try to make it personal. You know, every encounter you have, try to make it personal, try to make a connection, try to tell an anecdote about yourself, try to make a joke. Like, 
try to show yourself for who you are as an individual so that people will remember you, that you will stand out from the crowd. That's what I would say. Boy, is that good advice. And you hit it right on the nose with um, the great technology that exists makes everything so impersonal. Mm-hmm. And and students live, considering the, every piece of knowledge in the world is in their palm of their hand with their phones. Right. It, and that's how they communicate. So that's interesting that you say that. I love that. That that still exists. Yeah. And don't, and like, I would always say, like, don't be afraid of getting personal about yourself in the sense of, tell you know, if you came from a somewhat crazy background or you have a crazy hobby or you have something that is a character thing about you like that may resonate don't be ashamed of it It, it's all what makes you unique and can make you stand out and it's not a bad thing it'll help people remember you okay my here's my last question for you what would you tell 10 year old jill now run if you could (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, that wasn't the answer. You, no, she goes, no. That wasn't the answer you were looking for. And I probably screwed up Isaiah's audio. Too. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that. I used to be a radio DJ, remember? Like, I, I, know, I know. knew this. Um, 10-year-old Jill's advice. Well, you know, that's a tough one because it's such a different time and place, you know, predating any idea I would have for what my life would be or would want to be or anything like that. But I would just say probably at that time, you know, giving myself a pat on the back and maybe saying what I said to Isaiah earlier about believing in yourself as value, you know, cream always rises, as I said, but just believe in yourself as I have value. I have intrinsic value and I'm a believer in that, right? That I would probably say that to myself. It's pretty darn good advice. It's pretty good. Oh yeah. Don, you got anything to add there? How could I compete? How could I even follow that with anything? Uh, look, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, Jill. It's amazing. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Dawn, always, always a pleasure. She's my queen. You've been listening to episode 17 of Screen Perspectives. Screen Perspectives is hosted by Don Keezer and Kevin Smith, produced and engineered by Max Glider, Isaiah Stewart, and Jennifer Booker. Music by Isaiah Stewart. Special thanks to today's guest, Jill Danton, the Pittsburgh Film Office, and to the University of Pittsburgh. Screen Perspectives is a production of the Pittsburgh Film Office. <laughs>